this request because God had manifested himself numerous times already uh, to Moses. Remember the burning bee, bush that wasn't consumed. Surely the glory of God was there. The ten plagues that took Egypt before they let them go and how that all each one of those plagues defeated one of the gods of Egypt. The miraculous crossing of the Red Sea when the armies of Israel, armies of Egypt was behind and mountains on both sides and they came to the Red Sea and there was no escape and God gloriously uh, departed the water and dried up the land and they went through on dry land and when the army of Egypt pursued, the waters came back and the army was destroyed. What a glorious manifestation of God in, in that they had the water from the rock in the wilderness, daily provisions of manna, the smoking of Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments. And God had manifested his power and his glory over and over. Yet there's something more of his glory, something deeper, something richer, something more magnificent that Moses desired to see. He wanted to leave the shallow ground of, or the water or the depths of, shallow depths of God's glory, and he wanted to enter into the deepness of the glory of God. And so tonight we speak of the glory of God. I think first of all we need to try to put some kind of definition on glory. The root meaning of the Old Testament word that's translated glory means to be made heavy to be honored, to enjoy honor, to be made abundant. And, and so that, that the worth and the value and the, everything you can say about God is heavy, it's weighty. It, it, it's, uh, it has some, some depth to it, some weight to it. God really defies any simple one or two sentence definition uh, when we talk about his glory. And it actually borders on arrogance to even attempt to try to define the glory of God. It's a doctrine of, that encompasses his greatness, his beauty, his perfection, and all that he is. One man said for any human being to think that they could capture the glory of God in a single statement is, a, it is delusional at best and vain at worst. To squeeze what is infinite into what is finite is vastly more impossible than trying to cram the entire body of a fully developed elephant into a thimble. No matter how gifted you are or how hard you try, that just won't happen. And glory is like the word beauty. We can describe a ball, we can describe a house or draw a picture of a house or a candle or a cottage or any number of physical things but how do you describe beauty and everything that he is and everything that he does? God is greater than any human description. Every attribute and action of God is stunningly glorious. God's glory is intrinsic, meaning that it belongs naturally to him. It's essential to his being. Water, what water is to wetness, what 
blue is to the sky, what heat is to the fire, what light is to the sun, glory is to God. Water does not have to find wetness, it's wet. The sky does not have to look to find blue, it's blue. It doesn't take a match to make an already burning fire to have heat. And you cannot talk about God without talking about his glory. He is weighty. He's abundant. He's glorious in all that he is and all that he does. Every aspect of who God is and every part of what God has done is glorious. But even that is not enough of a description. Not only is he glorious in every way, but his very glory is glorious. Man is ascribed glory, whether he's a great athlete or a great painter or a great builder, a greatness in some matter. Man is ascribed glory, glory, but God is not ascribed glory. It naturally belongs to him. He is glorious no matter what you think. He's glorious no matter what I think. He's glorious no matter what humankind thinks about him. God is glorious. The Bible uses sometimes some natural things of nature to try to describe God. Isaiah does that when he says in the 40th chapter in the 12th verse, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? and meted out the heaven with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in the scales, and the hills in a balance. When trying to describe the greatness and the glory of God, he says that God has held all the water that's upon the earth in, his, in just the palm of his hand. Think about that. Think about, you know, we couldn't even hold a cup of water in our hand. When he describes him, he says that he, 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 he mets out the heaven, he stretches out the heaven with a span being from the finger, uh, thumb to the little finger, and that God's greatness spreads out throughout all the, all the sky that cannot even be measured and weighs the earth in a balance. Often, God's glory is illustrated uh, by the use of the term light. We find the word light used a lot in reference uh, to God. John 1, 5, 1 John 1, 5 says, And this is the message that we heard of him, and declared to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. John 1, 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. John 8, 12 says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world, and he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And so God uses light many times. Let's think about light for a second. The sun from which is all the light comes, and all really the energy that's in the world. Uh, though the sun is created, it resembles God in the sense that the sun is self-generating with heated plasma, it self-generates itself. It's 93 million miles away, yet there's enough heat in it to heat the earth. It's so large that 
185 earths would fit inside of it, and to approach it, to get too close to it, would burn us to a crisp. And God says in Psalms 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament show us his handiwork. That, that, that this great sun that we talk about and we know of four realities simply speaks of the glory of God and that he created it and how much greater he is in his glory than that which he created. In the same sense of the sun being, being self-generating, God is self-generating. He's always been and always will be. As the Son cannot be approached, neither can God be approached without going through Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 6.16 says, Who only hath immortality, dwelling in light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power and everlasting. Amen. And so when it talks about God, his glory makes him unapproachable unless we go through his Son, Jesus Christ. Without the sun, there is no light. And without the sun, there is no life. And he is the light of the world. And because he's the light of the world, we can, we can have life and we can, we can have experience with the Lord and we can have life and light. In eternity, God is going to send away the sun. He's going to put him on the shelf. No longer will he be needed. And Revelation says this, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. Now listen, For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. That the very glory of God is spoken of in the terms of light. And just think about light. Every morning here lately, I try to go out and sit on the porch in the morning and, and there's a quietness and you can read your Bible and you can see the squirrel run across the yard and see the, the earlier in the year uh, little chickadees or some kind of small bird would fly and land on the mirror of my car and he'd fight, 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 fight the mirror and always lose and then fly off. But every morning as the sun comes up, it ought to cry out to us and yell out to us that God is glorious. Look over in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 where God makes the case in the very first verses of Hebrews chapter 1 how that Jesus is none other than God in the flesh. And he says in Hebrews verse, chapter 1 and verse 3, who, breathed, who being in the brightness of his glory in the express image of his person and helped only all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins set down on the right hand of God the majesty on high. When it goes on and talks about how God, uh, the Father says to the Son, uh, he calls him God. But when it says who being in the brightness of his glory, what it's trying to picture here is that, that the Son, uh, the, the Son, has to have the sun to be the sun has to have the sun rays you cannot separate the brightness of the sun uh, from the God himself and that Jesus is the brightness and the sun is God the father if you want to put it that way but but you can't have the brightness without the sun and you can't have the sun without the brightness 
And so he, he wants to speak in terms of light and the glory of God. Now let me speak to you about the parameters of God's glory. Though God is intrinsically glorious, 100% uh, glorious, needing nothing from us to become more glorious. He doesn't have to be recharged. He doesn't have to be boosted up. His glory is complete in and of itself. Yet, yet he desires that his glory would be manifested in this world. He desires that the world would see his glory. And so let me speak to you a little bit about how God wants to manifest his glory. Surely we see that from Psalms 19 and verse 1 we just read, we see that God wants to manifest his glory through his creation. As we read, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork and that that, that, that we look at the creation of this world and we can see that there is a God, there is a creator, there has to be a first cause, and that, that, that this first cause that we see and understand by logic has to be he is glorious in who he is. You look at the flowers that grow this time of the year, you, you look at a babe, newborn baby, you, you look at the stars in the sky and the dancing of the northern lights, and we can't help but understand from creation that God is glorious. So he manifests himself through his creation. But he also manifested himself uh, through miracles. The Bible says in John chapter 11 and verse 4, when Jesus heard that about the case of this man being sick, he said, this sickness is not unto death. But for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. There sometimes with sickness, God brought sickness into people's lives because he wanted to perform miracles. Miracles manifest the glory of God. And we understand tonight that, that miracles in the New Testament were clearly to confirm the word of God. And when the word of God was complete, there was no more need for miracles to confirm the word of God. But now we have the gospel. And, and 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that the, that the glorious gospel of Christ shining into their hearts, not, not so much now glorious miracles, but we have the glorious word of God. And, and, and when we read this book, if, if we'll just take some time to quiet our hearts and get into this book, you'll begin to see that this is a glorious book that talks about a glorious God. We're talking about God's glory. It's manifested in creation. It's manifested through miracles. And God's glory is manifested through his children. He asks us and tells us and commands us and instructs us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Wherefore, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. God wants to take you and I and he wants to manifest his glory through us. We're, we're, the things that we do, that it ought to be to glorify God. It ought to be to manifest the glory of God. There's a couple of things we need to understand as created beings. Number one, we need to understand this, is that we have been created, or as one man has stated it, we have been hardwired 
to be moved towards glory. I want you to think about that. People are attracted to glorious things. Whether it's an exciting drama or a sports game or the best meal you've ever eaten or the glory of the sun setting up on the mountain range, we're attracted to that. We want, we want to go to that. We want to see new things, experience new things, see, see God in new things. We're, whether we are saved or not, mankind wants to be around glorious things. Tonight in, in, in Milwaukee, there's a basketball game going on for the NBA championship, and there's people there filled the great auditorium because they want to see something glorious happen with their team that they're cheering for. And so we're hardwired to want glorious things. Animals live by instinct and exist to survive, but we, with, we are wired to chase bigger things and enjoy bigger things and experience bigger things than just eating and sleeping and surviving. But you see, sin has marred that. What does Romans 3.23 says? Say, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's an effect in my ability to, to, to worship God. It's affected my ability to embrace the glory of God, to understand the glory of God, to long for the glory of God. There are only two kinds of people in this world, those who can can experience and, and rejoice in the glory of God and those who cannot. Paul, when he wrote the first verses there in the book of Ephesians, he said, he said of the saved Ephesian believers, he said, to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, that we praise him the glory of his graciousness to us, the glory of his grace. We praise him because we've been accepted in the beloved and, and, and the saved child of God. Listen, every person that was saved, and, and as we pictured the death, burial, and resurrection last Sunday and, and the baptism of two of our people, uh, two of our members, that, that, that shouted out, God is glorious in what he's done. And, and so... So the saved can experience that, but the, but the Bible says that the lost person, because that when he knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened. And so he calls upon you and I as his children, whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. God manifests himself through his creation. He manifests himself through the word of God and he manifests himself through his children as we do that which is glorious to him. And then I want you to turn tonight over to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 21. And we find here in Ephesians chapter 3, 21 that God manifests his glory through his church. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 21, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Manifested through his children, but also through his church. 
Listen to me now. There is absolutely a difference between being a child of God and a member of a New Testament church. Don't, don't make those equivalent. Salvation puts you in the family of God, and we as his children can do what we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, do all to the glory of God. But it takes a profession of faith followed by a scriptural New Testament baptism that places you into a New Testament church. Keep in mind that the word church is defined as an assembly of baptized believers organized to carry out the Lord's work. That it's an assembly over and over to the church that was at Ephesus. The church was at Thyatira. The church that was at Philadelphia. It's a local assembly of baptized believers. And God says he wants to have glory through his church, through his local assembly of baptized believers that are organized to do, do his work. There is a horrible God-dishonoring teaching today that when you're saved, you are Holy Spirit baptized into the universal invisible body or the universal invisible church. It's a teaching that robs God of his glory. It's a teaching that robs God of his glory. Universal invisible church teaching is heresy. But it's, but it's not only heresy, it's seriously wrong because God wants his glory through the New Testament assembly. In my 30 years of ministry, numerous individuals and families have come at one time or another and visited Plaque Road Baptist Church with the idea that they're members of some universal church and though they see the value of a local assembly, it's really secondary to the church. God only started one kind of church, and that is a local, visible, organized assembly. And this is where he wants his glory to come when it comes to spiritual work. You're in the book of Ephesians. Let's chase this a little further. Go to chapter 4. Chapter 4, he said, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the location wherewith you are called. And so he calls upon this local church members at Ephesus to, to walk worthy in the, in, the, in the calling that they're in. With all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. And so he tells us that we need to respond to each other in meekness and long suffering and forbearing. But that's not all that unites the church. What is it that unites the church? Not only this long-sufferingness and, and love and, and care for one another, but the doctrine that they believe unites them together. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Here's how a church has unity. Here's how the church works together. Here's how a church has peace. There is one body. That is one kind of body. Not a universal, invisible church body, but a local church body. There's only one body and one spirit. As you're calling, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Not Holy Spirit baptism into the universal church, but water baptism into the local assembly. One God and Father of all who is above all and through all. And in you all, people visit our church and the 30 years that I've pastored and they often wonder 
why are we not doing backflips to embrace them when all the time they're disrespecting the institution God wants glory from? Yeah, you know, as I said, they'll recognize there's kind of a necessity for an assembly, but actually the, the major thing is the Universal Invisible Church, and I'm already a member of that. But that's Hogwarts. They've already arrived, many of them think. They have no respect for the church's authority given by God himself. They do not want to place themselves under the New Testament church pastor who will watch for their souls. They're a law unto themselves. And many of those that have come and I've dealt with, they're unteachable. And they often think that God has called them to our church to help straighten us out. But listen, there's only one head of the church. And it's not any man walking on the face of this earth. You see, some people, now listen to me, some people are too spiritual to be a member of Black Road Baptist Church. That God has said to the local New Testament assembly at Corinth, for you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. I know this about myself. I'm the off-scouring of the earth. There's nothing good in me that God hasn't put there in me. And it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. And if there's any good thing that's ever come out of this pulpit when I was pastoring, it's because God did it. Listen, God did it. And some people are just too spiritual to be a profitable member of Placo Baptist Church. God gets the glory. God deserves the glory. God wants to manifest his glory in this world through his creation, through the miracles until the glorious gospel was completed, through his children who are called upon to, whether eating or drinking or whatsoever they do, to do the glory of God, and through the local New Testament church. God gets the glory. There's a guide tonight, today, the breaking of the morning and there in Lebanon who came from a small village in Alaska named Nanilchik, worked on fishing boats, came to the University of Alaska, was well-educated, surrendered to preach at our church, went this local, this, this guy who likes the rural country, never enjoyed anything more early in his life than fishing off a fishing boat in the summer. Yet he's a missionary that had over 70 people in attendance at a service last week. And God did it. And he did it through a New Testament church. And he got the glory. Now before getting back to Moses, I need to say one more thing. The Lord said in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, 
that is my name. My glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Know for surety that God is not going to share his glory with you. He will not do it. In Daniel chapter 4, we have Nebuchadnezzar saying in the kingdom of Babylon, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom of my might by my power and for the honor of my majesty? And before the day was over, he was out in the field eating grass like the oxen and had lost his mind. In Acts chapter 12, we read of King Herod who wanted glory for himself. So he declared, in a sense, King Herod Day in the amphitheater at Caesarea. He put on his royal robes and he elevated himself on a throne and all the people held him and as he gave a speech and the people responded by saying, it's the voice of God and not a man. And that's exactly what he wanted to hear. But his day ended with the words and the Lord struck him and he was eaten by worms and died. God's not going to share his glory. In Acts chapter 5 we find in Acts chapter 4 we find a man by the name of Barnabas on on the on uh, not on the how would you say that in 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 silence or in not advertising he went and sold a piece of property and he gave the, all the money to the church to help out caretaking of the widows and the church's needs. People learned of that and he got some notoriety, but actually God got the notoriety that he worked through him. God burdened his heart to do that. But there was a family by name, that <coughs> had a, two a family, a couple, uh, Ananias and Zephira, and they thought, man, this, this is a good deal here. Let's sell this property and we'll give some of it to the church, and we'll say that we gave it all to the church, but only part of it, because we want some glory. And the Bible tells us, first he came in, and he's taken out dead, and then she comes in and says the same story, and she's taken out dead, and God is not going to share his glory. Be careful in claiming the glory of God. Now let's return to Exodus 33. Exodus 33. Remember, we have Moses requesting that the presence of God would go with him. We have Moses beseeching God in the 18th verse, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. He saw the burning bush, and God had said unto him, who, who, he asked who's talking, and God said, I am. I am that I am, the eternal one, the Lord, Jehovah. He saw the ten plagues. He saw the pillar of fire and the cloud by day. He heard the women sing about the horse and the rider falling into the sea. God had gave a great victory and gave great glory in what he'd done. He got water from the rock one time illegally. 
He saw provision of manna, smoking fire, and the Ten Commandments. And God had manifested himself to him more than any other person in probably all the Bible. And he said, basically, I want to get out of the shallows here. And I want to enter into the depth of the glory of God. Show me that glory. Now the Lord is ready to show him his glory. And uh, he tells him to take two stones there in chapter 34 and go back up on the mountain. He broke the first tablets, you remember. And he tells him, I'm going to come to you and proclaim my glory. Will it be enlightening that he sees the glory of God as he hides him in the cleft of the rock? No. Will it be in the earthquake? Uh, no, it's not going to be in an earthquake like with Elijah. Will it be something new that God has created that he'll reveal his glory to him? No, that wasn't it. Will it be the physical outline of the spiritual God that will God will allow his spiritual side to somehow be outlined and be seen when God is spirit and we must worship him in spirit and truth? No, it says there in verse 19 of chapter 33, he says, and he said, I'll make all my goodness pass before thee. And I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. And so God says, I'm going to allow you to see my glory, and that my goodness is going to pass before you. Something deeper and greater, something that enters into the depths of the glory of God, not just what he's created, and not just what he's done, not the miracles, not created, creation, but his goodness. And then look down there in verse 6 of chapter 34. Well, let's look at verse 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, capital L-O-R-D, isn't it? Jehovah. It's me, Jehovah. It's, it's me that I am. It's me, the eternal one. I'm here. And I'm going to let you see and understand and comprehend. I'm going to let you go into the depths of my glory. And he says, merciful. Merciful. It's of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed because his compassions fell not. What he wanted Moses to see of his glory was, I'm a merciful God. Where would you be? And where would you be 
And where would you be? And where would I be without his mercy? Glory! Glory, glory! He's merciful. Ephesians 2 says, Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, we were rebels. The spirit that now worketh in children of disobedience, among whom also you had, we had our conversation, our lifestyle, and the in times past, and the lust of our flesh, for the filling of the desires of the place and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. He describes this as rebels. Children of wrath. But God, <laughs> thankful for the but gods of the Bible, but God who is rich in mercy, for his great love where he loved us, even when we were dead and trespassing in sin, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places. Oh, how he has been merciful uh, to me. He never gave me what I deserved. And then he says, gracious. I will, <clears throat> he says, merciful, I'll be gracious, whom I'll be gracious. And oh, verse, I'm mean, sorry, uh, 34. Merciful in verse 6, and gracious, favorable. Gracious means favorable, kind, and friendly. When in my lost condition, I didn't want to reta retain the knowledge of God even in my life. When I went to Sunday school and church with my parents and the invitation was given at the end, I, made, I beat feet as fast as I could out of the auditorium. I didn't want to be around him. Yet he was kind and friendly over and over and over to me. He was gracious. Glory. I mean, you can say what you want, but that's a little bit deeper for me than the heavens declaring the glory of God. That's far more personal to me. And then it says there in verse 6 that he's long-suffering. That word is made up of two words, long and tempered. Literally, he's long-tempered. To be long-suffering then is to have restraint. When he's stirred to anger, when his wrath is kindled and the wrath of God is abiding upon me, as John 3.36 says, he is long-suffering to me, not willing that any should perish. Now, it doesn't mean that he overlooks things because we find in verse 7 that he says that he'll not clear the guilty. By no means will clear the guilty. But I'm ashamed to admit how many times I knowingly and willingly sin against God and his wrath could have justly fell upon me but he was long suffering and that tells us that he was abundant in goodness and truth the word abundant talks about that, it, that his, his goodness and truth is limitless it's limitless in its breadth 
It was without limit in its depth. It's never been measured how high it is or how wide it is. God is good all the time. And his truth is absolute truth. And then he says in verse 7, forgiving iniquity, one type of sin, and transgression and sin. Sin, of course, you know, means to miss the mark. It can refer to anything that God that we've done against God. It's doing the opposite of right. Sin is failing to do what we know is right. Sin is doing what we know is wrong. And sin is a general term. And then he talks about transgressions. And transgression is when I willingly choose to disobey. It's willful. I knowingly, latently tell a lie. I blatantly disregard authority. We're transgression, transgressing. And then iniquity. It really refers to a premeditated choice. It refers to the inner character of our being that I'm full of iniquity, that I'm a sinner, I'm a transgressor, and I'm a wicked person in my inner being filled with iniquity. Yet, he forgives me. And moves my sin as far as the east is from the west. And buries it in the deepest sea. Now understand the deepness of the glory of God. Yes, he's glorious in his creation. He's glorious in his miracles. But the deepness of his glory is that he could save me. So Moses has heard God proclaiming himself. He's requested that he might see the glory of God. Show me that. God declares unto him his attributes of long suffering and graciousness and mercy. And when Moses heard the last words of God's proclamation, he hastened himself and he fell down before God and he worshiped. What do you say? What do you say that such a God exists? What kind of worship can come from my mouth tonight as I know what lost sinner I was? All I know is he's good tonight is to bow my head and say, thank you. say to you tonight that God is glorious. Let's pray.
Father, how uh, small my thoughts can be towards you. How empty. How unfulfilling. How pathetic. And Lord, tonight, how do we even approach a God such as this? How do we even express our gratitude? And Lord, I simply say to you tonight that I love you. Because you first loved me. Thank you. In Jesus' name.